Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We're in a sermon series called The uh, Faith That Works. It's about the book of James. And uh, each week we've given you a little intro about the book. Uh, Just a couple quick things again. Um, The guy who wrote the book of James or the letter was James, the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote it to the scattered church, which still includes us. Um, He quotes more the words of Jesus than any other New Testament book other than the Gospels. And really his his letter here is a series of many sermons, things that he probably delivered to his church in Jerusalem that he thought that the scattered church could benefit from. Um, It tends to be a series of really strong one-liners, basically direct statements that are hard for us to refute or argue with that Make us really look at our lives and what's going on. We've been challenging you to read each weekday from the book of James. So there's five chapters, read on Monday, Tuesday, etc., all the way through. And then uh, last week I gave you the additional challenge of maybe reading Matthew chapters 5 to 7 and Luke chapter 6, because these are the primary texts that James pulls from as he pulls onto those words of Jesus. Something else about James, he was highly respected by the people in Jerusalem. Uh, both the the Christian believers, but also the Jews as well. They called him James the Just. And he was also called James the Camel Knee, which is kind of a weird nickname. But basically, he spent so much time on his knees in the temple praying for his fellow Jews to come to a saving faith in Jesus that they said his knees were kind of gnarly looking. We're going to step into his story a little bit and his letter into chapter 3 today. Before we do that, I want to just review a few other things from last week. Last week, we talked about the gospel. And kind of our working definition that we're using right now is the gospel is the good news that we can have a relationship with Jesus now and forever while he forgives, heals, and transforms us. And the gospel is so key to how we grow in our faith. It just, it incorporates everything, both our salvation through the work of Christ And then our continued growth to be transformed to become more Christ-like through the work of the Holy Spirit as well as our partnership or our willingness to be changed. Now, one question I have for you is, what is central to who you are? If you were to sit back and think, how would you define yourself? And I'm not talking about the image that you want people to think about you or or the thing you're trying to portray to people. But what is really true to you? What is central to who you are? There's this word called integrity, and integrity just means it's when our actions and our beliefs match up. Would you say right now you're living a life of integrity? That your actions match your beliefs, your faith? You know, I think it's a good thing for us to check on things time to time. And today being the time change, you know, we're encouraged to check all of our fire alarms in our houses and change the batteries and things. 
Today, I want you to use this as kind of a check to check your actions. Again, do they match your beliefs? The core of who we are is our heart. And I'm not just talking about the little organ that that beats, that, that creates blood to flow through our body, but it's something more than that. And sometimes there's confusion when we talk about the heart. Um, I used to be really involved in kids' ministry. And you know, I used to use the phrase, at least initially, uh, to invite Jesus into your heart. That's a kind of a common phrase used in the, in the church. Until one week, there was this uh, young girl. She was a kindergarten, kindergartner, and she accepted Christ, which was awesome. Uh, on Monday, I got a call from mom saying that her daughter was trying not to go to the bathroom at all because she was afraid that Jesus would come out of her heart. So that's not what we mean by heart at all. So what do we mean? Well, the Hebrew definition of our heart is the center of us. Turns out that in Hebrew, there's no word for brain. It's kind of interesting. They, they didn't, I don't know what they thought the brain was for, but they thought the heart was everything. Not only the physical thing that kept us alive by pumping blood, but our emotions. Uh, the biblical phrase, uh, a broken heart, is where we get that phrase from. Um, thoughts. Our heart is what controls the way we think, and our heart controls our choices as well. It's it's a holistic view that the heart is basically all of us, our attitudes, our actions, our beliefs. It's a little different than the modern or Hellenistic view of segments of our lives, but the heart was everything. It's an all-or-nothing approach. In Proverbs, it says, A face is reflected in water, so the heart reflects the person. Again, our actions show who we are, what's at our core, our real you. So what is the nature of our heart? Well, it isn't so good. Uh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, said, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? You know, basically, if if I asked you, are people basically good or evil, you know, good or bad? How would you answer? I know nowadays a lot of people would say people are generally good because they they want to be positive and encouraging. However, the actual truth, particularly through a biblical perspective, is that we're all broken, we're all sinful, and we're all selfish. Theologians use the word total depravity. Um, When asked about his own heart, C.S. Lewis, an author that a lot of us know, he said this, For the first time I examined myself, what I found appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a Harlem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. And that name that he's referring to is a reference to the story of in Mark where Jesus uh, exercises a legion of demons out of people. It's not a very positive look at himself, was it? And I know I'm being far from encouraging at this moment, but I think it's important that we face the truth inside of us so that we can grow and change. I really think the root of all sin is selfishness and pride. It's kind of these attitudes that I want what I want, but God keeps me from it. I know better than God what is best for me. I deserve what other people have, or I'm just better than they are. Those things we have in our hearts and when we allow them to basically breed, it makes us even more sinful. 
we will never get to the heart of our sinful behavior until we undercover the underlying desires of our heart and our attitudes that motivate us. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of your life. Everything is dictated by our heart. Christianity is not simply a matter of making right decisions or changing our behavior by our willpower. That doesn't work. Christianity is about a heart transplant, which gets us back to this gospel. The gospel is the good news that we can have a relationship with Jesus now and forever while he forgives, heals, and transforms us while he gives us that heart transplant. I think sometimes our souls are so calloused by our sin that we do not sense the infinite offensiveness that our sin is to God. Pastor and author Brian Hedges says, Jesus takes our stony hearts, monstrous and deformed by sin as they are, and replaces them with new hearts. He cleanses us from the idols in our lives by his word, sanctifies and indwells us by his spirit, creates in us a new through Jesus, grants us the gifts of repentance and faith, and renews our image of God within us. Now, that quote mentions idols, and, and John the Apostle, in the first letter of John, encourages at the end by just saying in the ESV, it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The NLT kind of says it different. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in our hearts. That's really an idol. And we must realize that idols come in an endless form of a variety of forms, not just uh, statues and wood. Scripture not only warns against bowing down to idols, but against idols within our heart. Even in ancient times, wooden and stone idols were simply disguises for the idols within our hearts. For instance, Baal and Zeus and Jupiter within the Roman world was the god of strength. It was, he was worshipped. Asherah, Venus, Aphrodite, the god of love or fertility. Bacchus, the god of, god of wine, and Narcissus, the god of self-love. We kind of look and we think about those idols and those, those false gods and we kind of laugh at them sometimes, but the truth is we're not so different. You see, Baal and Zeus is still worshipped because we go after and worship self-reliance or independence. Asher and Venus are still worshipped because of things like pornography and lust. Bacchus is still worshipped because of alcoholism and addiction. Narcissus is still worshipped because of the god of self-esteem or maybe even the bigger god of just self that is worshipped in our culture. So you see, we're really not that different. Calvin said that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols We worship what we serve. Jesus pointed this out. In Matthew Matthew 15, he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Basically, he was saying, you're following an idol instead of me. And of course, idols were a focus in the ancient time, but I think they're still a focus today. It's part of our base condition that we need a new heart. We need a new heart transplant. So putting it together, our hearts are at our core 
but our hearts are broken by sin and the selfishness. We try to fill up the, the heart cracks that we have with idols instead of God, but it impacts our relationships. It impacts our relationship with God. It impacts our relationship with others. And we desperately need the gospel, the full gospel. We need transformation. So as we dive into James today, the reason why I've spent time talking about our heart condition is because if you read James, you can just take it as behavior modification, but I want you to go deeper than that. I want you to think of James as really looking at the condition of your heart as a litmus test of how that's going and then look for your need for a savior, for growth, and for transformation. So today we're talking about James chapter 3, the test of our words and how it impacts our relationships. The question is really how we show the condition of our heart to people around us. As usual, I always bring up the fact that Jesus gave us six words, the purpose for our lives, to love God, love others, and make disciples. And what a huge impact our words have on our relationships, both positive and negative. Even sometimes not saying words has impact. For instance, not saying something hurtful, well, that, that's positive. But not saying, thing, saying something supportive or comforting when we should, that's negative. And so the issue of our words is the focus of chapter 3. And James, of course, jumps straight in. He's, he's quick every time to, to start in. You know, last week I read uh, verses out of James and then some of Jesus' words. So I'm going to reverse that order a little bit. We're going to look at some of what Jesus said first. Once when Jesus was confronting some Pharisees in relation to ceremonially hand-washing and some other practices, Jesus said this, Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. It's what defiles you. For, for from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying and slander <laughs> the heart is our core and Jesus is calling out this condition that we have and how it shows up in our words evil thoughts and murder and these horrible things how that comes from our heart Jesus picks up the same issue and he talks about it in terms of our tongue or our speech controlling our hearts and our direction in verse 3, he says, we, cannot, we can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes the ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. Ever run into a person that you feel like needs a clutch? <laughs> a clutch kind of between their, their mouth and their brain a little bit? Maybe both for volume and intensity and for content. Maybe just because they tend to, to talk before they think. That, that sounds a little innocuous and not bad, but then here, here James is. He turns a corner on us. A tiny spark can be set by a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire for it is set on fire by hell itself. These are pretty strong words. Here in Colorado, especially after all of the fires last summer and fall, 
we understand what a spark can do. And for those that live out in the plains, a cloud of smoke in the distance causes a certain amount of anxiety just based on which way the wind is blowing. So what type of speech is James talking about that is on fire? Hurtful, hateful words, criticism, gossip, judgment. Here's just a piece of it, and he adds, People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is relentless and evil, full of deadly poison. I'm sure we've all seen this before. Somebody with an acid tongue. Words that just can't be taken back, that are hurtful. Words that destroy friendship and marriages. Uh, With my own kids, I used to to kind of teach things about the tongue sometimes and kind of pull this passage out. And I used to do this thing, and I'd say, hey, kids, we're going to have a race today, two races, in fact. The first race is, here's a tube of toothpaste, and I give them all a tube, and I say, who can squeeze out all the tube of toothpaste as quick as possible? And the kids would dive in right away. They'd pull up the cap, and they'd squeeze it down, and, and we'd have a winner. And then I said, the second race is now, who can put all the toothpaste back in the tube? And they'd sit there for a few moments and try to figure it out and give me this inquisitive look. And then finally somebody would say, it's not working. It can't go back in. It can't be done. And I'd say, that's exactly truth, especially about our words. It's easy for them to come out, but we can't take them back. On the Sermon of the Plain in Luke 6, Jesus taught this. A good tree can produce, a good tree can't produce bad fruit. And a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes and grapes are not picked from brambles, bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Last week I talked about the example of how fruitless it is to staple apples on a dead tree. It's the same concept here. You can't make things seem better. Your words can't be be truly good until your heart changes. James relates this to our worship and our love of God. As he continues, he says, sometimes the tongue praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursings comes pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out of both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives and a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. If someone is salty, it never seems like fresh words come out. Does it make sense? Heart and words track. It's pretty basic. If you want to love others well, pray for God to transform your heart. Choose to have a clutch, but also change that your actual heart changes and you see people differently. Now, Scripture never means something different to us than it did the original original audience. But at the same time, um, it's a living word. And so the application of what we do with Scripture does adapt to our context and our culture. And so here's my 2021 update to checking our heart and our words. 
Just real quick, a couple other things other than just spoken speech to think about. Social media. Maybe do this check. The things that you are posting, would you say that directly to someone? Are you allowing kind of the stepping back and it's just a computer screen for you allow, to allow you to say some pretty hurtful things that, again, you would never say in person? And check, what are you saying in social media? What are you allowing the world to see that you worship? Christ? An idol? Anger? Resentment? Bitterness? Just your strong opinion? So check what you're doing in social media. It's part of this whole thing. Another thing is this concept of white lies. White lies are just defined as an often trivial or maybe diplomatic or well-intentioned untruth. (laughs) Untruth. (laughs) It's still a lie, isn't it? Kind of sounds like our enemy a bit, doesn't it? It's things like when you say, oh, we love the vase, but unfortunately it broke and we don't have it anymore. Or, I wasn't screening your call, I just had bad service at the moment. Or, of course, the things like, it's, it's not you, it's, it's me. It's those things that maybe we say so that we're trying not to hurt the person, and so we, we do this little off-truth thing. But the truth is, a lie is always found out. And it always hurts a relationship. And so maybe, maybe it's more about finding ways to say the truth in a way that gives compassion. How about this? Um, Self-justification phrases, or as I like to call them, social fire escapes. How about this one? Social fire escapes allow you basically to to express a stern or maybe even a rude opinion that you have, and then kind of peel it back and say, well, not really, or, or maybe peel it back and say, this isn't really me, this is just an objective view of it, right? But in reality, we really know what we're doing. Here's a list of a couple of fun ones, right? And I say fun, tongue-in-cheeks. Things like uh, at the end of saying something rude or offensive, you say, uh, but I'm telling you with love. Or, I'm sorry that you felt that way. How about this one? Uh, I've just got to be me. Or maybe the other way, you just got to be you. You know, you do whatever you want to. How about this one? I'm sorry that you took it badly, but it's the truth. Or, I just don't know a good way to tell you this. How about this one? With, with all due respect. <laughs> or, I'll be praying for you. Kind of throwing down the God card. Like, here's this horrible thing about you, but I'll be praying for you, so it's okay. Or, if you're from the South, how about the whole bless your heart, right? That, that has a whole connotation to it, doesn't it? Or maybe you say something and you say, well, no disrespect intended. Or, no offense. Or, well, it's just my opinion. Or the one that I think I hear a lot lately, I'm just saying. You know, you look horrible, but I'm just saying. It's, it's not a big deal, right? Those, those fire escapes, sometimes it feels like, well, it gives us an opportunity again to, to say this opinion, get it out there. And, and maybe we're, we're feeling like we're speaking the truth in love, but are we really? Think of it this way. If you have to add one of those fire escapes at the end of what you're saying, maybe you shouldn't have said it to begin with. Think it through. Or maybe the last of the the heart and word checks that I have is just tone. And yikes, this this is where I tend to live a little bit. 
I would love to have this t-shirt. The t-shirt says, you know, coffee saves lives. Just ask my kids. They know in the morning to kind of avoid me. It's kind of, a, I think, a running joke in the family around me that just uh, the morning is not my time when I first get up. And I may say things that I, I heartfelt mean, and I mean for them to be good, but my tone takes that away. And even tone of like if you're in a crowd of people and you whisper to somebody else off to the side, that is a tone. You're saying something to the rest of the group. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. And it's not just the words, it's how it's said. Remember in all of this, our goal is to love God and love others. And so if you're finding and feeling a little convicted that your tongue is an issue here, then seek God, seek transformation. Because we want the things that come out of our tongue to be a fresh spring, to be refreshing to people around us, and to show the faith and the love that God has given us. Now again, James is full of these little mini sermons, so I'm going to jump to sermon number two in chapter three, which is very related. James chapter three, sermon two, is about living well with others. And in a lot of ways, this is a short little sermon. It's a bit of a summary, but then it has a new point at the end. Starts out and it says, you, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, kind of that life of integrity, doing good works with humility that comes from wisdom. And we talked about works last week as works as being an outflow of your faith and your salvation, not a way that you're earning things from God. So he's calling you to do things that show who you are, the outpouring of your heart. He continues and says, but if you are bitterly jealous, and there is self-ambition in your heart. Don't cover up the truth of boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. That's pretty strong. If you have things that are nasty in your heart, you need to work past them. You need God to help change you. He then says, For what, wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle, and at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. We talked about favoritism last week in, in chapter 2 about sometimes we, we help people that we are most like or that we expect things from down the road. And again, he's calling us to sow no favoritism, to seek peace. And he concludes this short little sermon by just saying, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. I think this is a huge issue in our I-70 corridor. The culture that we have, we're really good about entering conflict, but not so good at resolving and then reconciling conflict. It's a huge thing. And part of it may be these phrases that we use where we, we stir up things by what we say and we have those fire escapes on the end. It's just me or just my opinion. We create the conflict, but we don't actually resolve it. 
Jesus taught on this. He said, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. <laughs> now, wait a moment. I think we all want to be children of God. And, and there's a part of that children of God which has to do with our salvation, but there's another part here of, again, being in connection with God and in relationship. You see, there's two sides of peace. On the one side is our side. If we wrong somebody or we're harboring anger towards them, it's on us to step in and to ask for forgiveness. And then there's the other side, which is the other person. But even then, I'll tell you as a Christian, it's still your job to forgive, to try to reconcile even when there's an issue or even when they don't approach you. Jesus continued to teach on this. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with somebody, you are subject to judgment. If you call somebody an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse somebody, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that somebody has something against you, Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. You see, conflict isn't just about you and the other person. It actually impacts your relationship with God. All other people are made in the image of God. And so if you have this conflict, you create conflict in your relationship with Jesus. So be reconciled. Maybe the hard part here in our culture, in our area, is just simply to be reconciled. Sometimes we have to swallow our pride. We have to admit our part of the issue and then seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness. Jesus gives us a plan in Matthew 18 that we call the the plan for conflict resolution or sometimes even church discipline. The first step of it is called out here. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. The issue is privately, not through gossip, not through talking to other people or whatever, but to go to that person first and see if you can resolve it. Now, what if somebody comes to you, for instance, and talks about some other conflict that they're in with somebody else? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to step in and help solve it? Not initially. Send them back. It's this part. They need to grow a little bit. Redirect them back to that person and have them talk through it. It's not your job initially to do that, but you may have a place to step in later to mediate when both people are together to be there to help. But initially... If somebody comes to you and says, I'm having this issue, you need to say, have you talked to them? Have you prayed for them? Now, Don has often spoke about conflict resolution, and we've done a whole series on this. So I'm not going to go through a whole thing of how to do it. I'm just going to leave you with, with maybe five points for you to think about, right, real quick. The first thing of biblical conflict resolution is to start with self-reflection. And this comes from Matthew 7. Matthew 7 talks about how Jesus was saying, how, how can you look at somebody else and judge them on an issue that is a speck when you have a log in your own eye? So make sure you look at the issue and see what part of it is yours to own. 
How did you cause this? How did you go on? The second has to do with initiate reconciliation, whether you're the party that wronged somebody or whether they wronged you. As Christians, we should be able to step in and to start this. These various verses that I list, Romans 12, 18, for instance, talks about as much as it is up to you, live in peace. Try to, to have reconciliation. doesn't mean that that other person is always going to respond and everything, but do what you can. And we can't just say that if they have an issue with me, it's their own issue, right? They got to get over it. That's not biblical. That's not what we're supposed to do. Step three is to focus on resolution, not just justification. Don't, don't just be defensive and say, I'm justified in my actions. And instead, love others. Seek their best. We talked about loving others when they're difficult last week. Forgive each other. That's what one of these verses talks about. Forgive each other as you have been forgiven. It's so important. Step four, get assistance. If you're deep in conflict, whether it's with somebody else or your spouse or within your family, and you, you try to get it resolved and you just can't do it, try to do get help from somebody. Have someone else step in and maybe just mediate or just be there as you talk through. Um, Particularly in marriage, I, I do a lot of marriage counseling here. And, and the thing that I do more than anything is allow you to talk and give you some tools to, to be able to talk to each other. I'm not, I don't come in as judge and jury. Matthew 18 is a great roadmap for resolution. If you need to, follow those steps. And then step five, really resolve the issue. The goal is to get to the point that you actually ask, receive, and give forgiveness. Get to the place that you can actually be together and pray together. Now, that doesn't mean sometimes you're not hurt to the place that, that trust is broken and, and it's difficult for the relationship to come to the same place it was. But we want to get to at least a place that we don't harbor anger and resentment and that we don't avoid someone. That, that's things that we do in middle school. It's time to grow up. We don't avoid somebody. We get to the place that our conflict is resolved so much that we can pray for each other. Now just to wrap all this up again, right? Our hearts are our core. Our hearts are broken because of sin. We try to fill the cracks within our hearts with idols, with our heart's desires, if you will. And sometimes we even try to fill it with anger, bitterness, and unresolved conflict. And these all impact our relationships with God and with others. We need the gospel desperately. We need a heart transplant. We need transformation. I've heard it said that anger is like taking poison while hoping the other person will die. <laughs> it doesn't work. It only hurts you. And between talking about the tongue and talking about peacemaking, that's what James chapter 3 is all about. Let's go ahead and pray together. Dear God, I thank you that you love us deeply. You see everything about our heart. You see how our hearts are, we, we hold on to things. They're bitter, they're malicious, they're angry, they're hurt. And you want to change that in our lives you would so much rather our heart be filled with joy and forgiveness and grace 
and hope. It's hard to have those things when we fill it with so many other things, so many idols of our heart's desires, but idols that just lead us down a horrible path. Jesus, I ask for all of us to have heart transplants. I know that that's what you want for our lives, and that's what you talked about. There's new paths. If we're willing to give up things that we shouldn't be holding on to anyways, you are there to ease our burden. For you are willing to forgive us and to give us rest. So Jesus, just transform us. Allow us to be able to start to see the areas we talk. Just allow us to be you know, self-aware of the things that we talk about. Self-aware of how we talk to others so that we can see the places we need to work. And then, Holy Spirit, as you convict us, also encourage us as we, we start to change and we say things much better to others. Allow us all to be pursuing peace. Peace with our relationships. Peace with people that have hurt us in the past and we need to move past. Jesus, it's so hard when I hear people talk about relationships they don't have with people anymore. Sometimes even sons and daughters and brothers and mothers and fathers that they haven't spoken to in years or decades. They probably don't even remember what the fight was started about. Allow us to pursue and to reconcile those relationships. Give us a new heart. A heart that loves you and loves others well. And everybody said, Amen.